0: Hey everyone, George Edelman here, editor in chief at No Film School and host of the No Film School podcast. This week, my guests are all connected to the Oscars or the Academy Awards coming up this weekend. Why? Because they're nominated. And we're even going to do a roundup episode at the end of the week where we pick some of the best moments and answers from all of our guests who are nominated this year. And of course, because we're the No Film School podcast and we love teaching about filmmaking and the actual craft and the things that are happening behind the scenes and we want to get a little inside baseball, most of these guests are really craftspeople. My guests today are Mark Mangini and Theo Green. These are two of the lead guys or the lead guys on the sound for Dune. Now. If you saw Dune, you know how amazing this movie is and how incredible it sounded. If you haven't seen Dune, go see Dune right now. Come back, listen to this podcast, and then also listen to our episode where I talked to Jill Walker, the editor, Greg Frazier, the cinematographer. Dune is just a masterful blockbuster tentpole movie. There is very little like it in recent memory. There have only been so many movies like it ever. The sound design for this movie is better than you even think. When we talk to Theo and Mark, we get an idea of how much work goes into crafting an entire world, an entire universe of sounds, many of which we've never heard before, but they had to be created out of tangible real life things because they wanted to ground it. We get into all the details. I've had Mark on the show before. He's an amazing guest, an amazing talent. And I'm just really excited for people to listen to this and learn even more about how making great sound is such a critical ingredient in making a good movie. Far more than people realize, and a lot of people even realize it. So here we go, Mark Mangini and Theo Green on the sound of Dune. It's an honor to have you both here. It's great to have Mark back. Dune, it's a mind-blowingly good movie. And it's inc- it's crazy to me, just as an overview, that you guys, Denis, that the whole team pulled it off. I think in terms of degree of difficulty, bringing this story to life on the screen in a satisfying, effective way that makes people who've lived with these books for generations, almost <laughs> as well as novices, come together and say, wow, what a great movie. I just don't think it gets any harder. So I just kind of (laughs) want to start with just the fact that you all cleared that hurdle and not to mention the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's hard to make anything good in this town. Always has been. Definitely given everything coming at you with Dune. Can you tell me both? We'll start with Mark and then Theo, how you came onto the project and knowing that it was going to be this massive task.
1: Sure. Um, it started with a phone call from Denis. I think after perhaps he had just gotten the green light for writing and directing the film. And he said, Let's get the band back together again. Those were his exact words <clears throat> because we had, you know, arguably an incredible band together on Blade Runner. And we had great success with Blade Runner. We had a, a great experience with Blade Runner working with Denis. That's Theo and I, and Ron Bartlett, Doug Hempill, and Mac Ruth. So, the five, perhaps, um, you know, key members of the sound team he wanted to bring back together and take it on the road.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Take it to Arrakis. Okay. And Theo, (laughs) can you chime in on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think actually, whilst I also got a call from Denis and we kind of sort of sent the script and stuff, it was. It was um, when Joe Walker first started getting picture in and he, I think he, he texted all of us, me, Mark, Ron and Doug just going, oh you guys, you have such a treat in store. <laughs> 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 You're like, you tease, <laughs> show <Shut> us <Yeah>. something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd been out and um, sort of experienced a desert for the first time, a much smaller scale than Arrakis but um, uh, Death Valley in, in, in California um, just to kind of experience i i didn't know what it was like to walk on you know on sand dunes i didn't know what it was like how silent it would be or any of these things mm. um, and i took the script with me and kind of tried to you know really envisage how some of the um the scenes on Arrakis were going to play out but i also know that i'm i'm not that good at <laughs> imagining how a, a you know a great director like denis is going to You know the the types, the 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 aesthetics that he's going to choose, the way that he's going to depict something like, um, you know, an an alien planet in ten thousand years' time. So it wasn't until I started, you know, seeing the very first few bits of footage. And actually, I think we were also sent some uh, concept art to look at as well, which is yeah, we right. were going to go, oh, look at those ornithopters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We
0: yeah. also
1: got that silly online script thing that I just load where you, can't, you can only watch it on a tablet or a, or a computer. <laughs> I script, you mean? You can only see
0: a script on the, 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 the actual pages. You're Correct. Reading. It's the only yeah. way to see
1: them. Yeah,
0: Yeah, unless you so- cheat. You mentioned the fight, you mentioned the getting band back together, and Theo, you mentioned the group as well. Can you break down for our audience what the roles are of the team from Blade Runner to this band in particular? And, uh, you know, kind of put yourselves, like, put each person sort of like, so Mark and I'm this. And, you know, so we, so just contextualize so they understand how the other parts of the team fit into this.
2: Well, I'll start because I think both with, um, Blade Runner 2049 and dune I was brought on a little early uh, certainly a lot earlier than um, a sound person would normally <laughs> be brought on and that is when Joe Walker started cutting those you know first pieces of footage that started arriving in Budapest where the uh, the studio was based and that is the the studio where they built the sets rather on Blade Runner 2049 I think Joe kind of Tentatively asked if I would come out and just design a couple of effects because it was a very hard thing for him to cut early footage and present it to um, Denis and to the producers without having some sort of a sense of how the, the Blade Runner universe is going to sound, and that worked out very well. We on Blade Runner brought um, Mark came out and met us in Budapest while we were working there, and we decided to work together. But on Dune, I mean, we knew that that was a good way to work for me mm. to sort of start kicking off early ideas and, you know, to be sending them all through to Mark so that Mark could start thinking about what he needed to go and record, what resources we needed to plan, what we, how we were going to work together and what sort of a team we needed and all of those things. So I was kind of in the position of, uh, what do you call it, when someone's, you know, like a reconnaissance mission. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, basically on, on both of those films, Mark and I just sort of tucked in, shared out the, the, the sound design duties and, and, you know, communicated with the people that we wanted to work with to make sure that the very specific style that Denis had in mind for the sound, quite different, honestly, for Blade Runner and for Dune, later on we were having to follow on from a universe that had already been kind of established and and in dune we were very much going back to the source material of the book and, and reimagining kind of what this universe could be so yeah um that that kind of that contextualizes emotion.
0: both both of you and then and then you bring in the others maybe the you can bring us man. in the mark
1: yeah yeah of course well of course uh, mac ruth is our production sound mixer so He is the person who is on set and on location every day, capturing sync sound. You know, every scene you have, you know, you have the person with, for those who don't know sound, there's somebody there with a sound recorder and somebody with a boom pole and a microphone. You must capture the dialogue and sound effects and anything that uh, is audio synchronized with the image as it's captured during filming. So that is Mac Ruth and his team of. George and Avon and oh dear I'm going to leave out their second their other first assistant sound person and then as Theo and I go through what we call post-production which is after the film is shot we design and edit all the sounds in post-production we then bring all that work to a mixing facility where Ron Bartlett and Doug Hempel would take all the sounds that we that Ruth has captured for dialogue and Theo and I have created for sound effects and atmospheres and creature voices and they mix that into the what you hear is the final soundtrack in the theater.
0: Got it. And let's just talk about, you know, this there's so many directions to go in and I don't know where to start, but I'm going to try with this like let's just talk about production sound versus what we get. Like Dune is it is such an auditory universe and experience. So much feels like it's crafted. and I mean, those tracks that you, that you get out of production sound, how much of it ends up, you know, dialogue, how much ADR is done, how much do you have to flavor and add and how many layers of, just tell me a little bit about that track you get versus where and, and where, you, what you, where you go with it.
1: Well, there goes the hour right there. That's the yeah, hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we could talk to both of us for a while on that. I mean,
0: let me, let me say
2: a little about, because, you know, um, definitely when I first um, arrived there in Budapest and, and we're listening to those scenes that have been shot both in the desert and, you know, um, there are a lot of practical effects. So in an ornithopter, there's a machine that's vibrating the ornithopter. There are wind machines blowing sand. There's, there are a lot of challenges for a production Sound recordist, and at the same time, Denny is very, very keen on on keeping as much as we can of the original performances of the actors, because you know, in so many of these scenes, you know, it, it's incredibly important for character to come across, and for it not to all be about you know replacing it with ADR, um, right. which is a process where you do start to lose the performance, especially if a, an actor is coming in, you know, six months or eight months after he's recorded those lines, and perhaps he or she has already played five different characters in different movies, you know, in between. So what oh, is of Oh, absolutely.
0: Things- and w- sorry to cut you up, but one of the reasons I yeah. ask is because I picture all these sequences where it's hard for me to imagine that the production tracks yes. with the dialogue of the performances. Because there's so much happening, the Orenthopters is a perfect example, but continue. I mean, I think we, we managed to identify a couple of small areas
2: where, you know, it, it would be a great thing to get either... Um, an actor to come in and quickly re-record a line when there was just one or two things that needed to be changed or or that weren't picked up perfectly on the microphones, let's say. And, you know, having an editor working that early in the process and having Mark and I listening in that early in the process means that we are able to identify certain areas that would, would need work. But in um, a lot of cases, you know, we're working to save audio that has got some sort of noise in the background rather than replacing it with ADR where we can. So there are, there are software tools that Mark and I and our dialogue editors um, and Ron Bartlett as the dialogue mixer is able to use to rescue audio that, let's say, has a bit of a machine sound behind it. But yeah. um, I mean, I'd say in so many cases, the, the most important thing for us was to try to preserve the original performances where possible, yeah there are just a couple of sequences where the practical effects going on are going to be too loud for that to work but it, it's it's few and far between sadly um, um, yeah.
1: adr automated dialogue replacement has become a crutch in movies like this you know it seems to be understood on set that if oh if we have a noisy wind machine or a vibrating device that shakes the ornithopters it's it's facile to say well we'll get it in adr but Not only Denis, but Theo and I strongly believe in those original, authentic performances that are very often very hard to recapture in a recording studio. So I would say that we go to perhaps greater lengths than most to make sure those original recordings, in honor of those actors' performances, are are rescuable and, and, and made presentable
2: that said pretty much the only thing that we're taking from those original recordings is recordings of dialogue i mean right mark i, I don't think there's really anything else that you hear in the movie other than dialogue from the actors that yes. was recorded on set that's something yeah. where we're replacing literally everything uh,
1: i was just going to go back to your first question about coming on the project after Denis asking if we can get the band back together he and i met for lunch one afternoon And he asked what my recommendations were. And this speaks to this idea of the production sound. One of the things uh, that would not have been captured in the production sound were the voices of the Fremen. And I I noticed in the script that the Fremen, anytime a character would speak in Fremen, it was written in English and subcaptioned in the script as to be said in Fremen. But no one had actually thought through the idea of, well, where do we get Fremen? (laughs) <laughs> and I had remembered being uh, really impressed with the languages that were created for the Game of Thrones series. And we researched that individual, and he's a, a fairly well-known person in his field—a a linguist. Was it Dave Robinson? Theo, help me with his name. I Please look um, that up quickly because i wanted I'm quickly to quickly looking it up. Yeah. He really deserves some credit. And, and D- Denis was really thankful for this, this suggestion because he was immediately hired and put on to not only create a bespoke Fremen language, but a bespoke Harkonnen and Sardaukar language. And Denis would feed him the, the, the lines in English and, and uh, he would feed back to us not only the lines as written, In this bespoke language, but phonetic pronunciations for the actors. And every actor received a kit that included uh, phonetic pronunciations as well as uh, short audio recordings of him speaking the language. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of
2: America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank
1: of America and a member FDSE.
0: So David J. Peterson created these languages, but they sounded absolutely amazing. Especially, I keep thinking, all of them, but I keep thinking of the Sardacar, The scene where we first go there, we see them... The guy is singing or making i don 't know what he 's doing up on the thing but that 's part of what 's so amazing about this movie is that it sinks. I read the book you know like i 'm familiar with the world, but there 's things you all brought, and I say you all because it 's not just the sound team, it was this beautiful collaboration that just make us wonder what is the biggerness of this universe that i 'm just glimpsing so something like that the sounds they mm. make when they speak is mm. how does that connect to you know take me from the David J Peterson is writing languages, and then you are, as a team, discussing. Well, how do they sound, and how do we affect those sounds? In
2: truth, we had, um, you know, we had a lot of collaboration with Hans Zimmer. You know, there were areas where we were doing things that crossed over into music, and there were things, there were areas where Hans was crossing over into what you could say is uh, sound design. And even though David Peterson had written something for that Sadakar priest, I think we called mm-hmm. him too to mm-hmm. be singing hans came up with uh, a very interesting way of resequencing and distorting a voice and what we hear performance coming from from the sadhakarp Sarduk- priest is largely a hans zimmer concoction but we also hear um, mark came up <laughs> with sadhakar captain's voice speaking in in Sardukar that was also a kind of you know, based on what David Peterson had written, right, Mark? But then again, no, you know, no, reconfigured I'm, in your own way. Uh,
1: no, I've, I've been needing to correct that because there's a lot of that online. And, and it, it should be known that before I dedicated myself to cinema, I was at university studying foreign languages to become a translator at the UN. So I had a certain facility with languages, and <sighs> I, I made up all of that commander's dialogue from cloth.
2: Wow. If they get like alien people at the UN, you you put a new
0: job. I'm the first call. <laughs> Tell me about what happens from the idea. Like what how do you choose the intonations and what he says and what he like, please explain a little bit about that, you know, like like just that process of creating that because that is the texture really of the well, film f- in things like the,
1: that. For that character in particular. I had my hands tied a little bit because I had to be um, uh, faithful to on-camera sync, so there were only certain phonemes that were ever going to fit in his mouth for the duration and the shapes of his lips, so I just played around with just sounds until I found something that uh, I, you know, what, you know, this is probably what those bad lip. St. Guy's do online, <laughs> you know, you, you turn off the sound yes. and you watch a phrase and you, you, you imagine what does that look like? He's saying in this, so you just start playing with like, you know, stupid kid syllables and, mm. and jumbling them together in some mishmashed order, keeping in mind that I understand the structure of language. I understand verbs and pronouns and adjectives and conjugations of verbs and tense and and things like that. So I knew if he repeated a word, I had to repeat the word I had already made up if it was said earlier on, but I might have to change the tense or the case. So just applying basic language skills. You know, we had all these other languages that, that um, David did. It
0: did sound different, right? Well, to be different. well,
1: for example, we knew that we needed crowds of people chanting things like mm-hmm. and David had already defined. Well, in fact, I, I believe Herbert had actually given us, We had a, we had a library or compendium of audio samples from Herbert himself speaking those words so we understood their pronunciations. But David, for all the other languages that he created, gave us those pronunciation samples so that anyone anyone could listen to them and reproduce them.
0: It's like it's like talking to like the film version of Tolkien, because he did all the linguistics for all of his cultures. But I think what I keep coming back to is it's sort of like I feel like Hitchcock once said this about editing. It's like it like you have to lay out pictures between start and finish to get your movie and I feel like with sound design on this film you have to do that and there's no pictures you have you have to create them you have that dialogue track right but you had to yeah. create all of these atmospheres all of these words and sounds it's amazing one thing i want to talk about again with the languages and is that in a crowd scene for example we do have a sense or you did of, of how that Haderach is pronounced i am not saying it correctly but you have a bunch of people probably saying it a little differently, right? Because mm-hmm. one crowd isn't all going to say it the same. How do you account for all that stuff? Like, oh, we need to have a few different accents or something, right?
1: Well, when we did, we brought in, very early on in the film, it was a critical component uh, uh, that, that crowd chanting when Paul arrives with his father at uh, Arrakis and they're greeted by throngs and we brought in 25 or 30 actors into a recording studio to do those chants and those shout outs. And most of them, if not all, were actors and voiceover talent that already had Mm. some form of foreign accent that lent itself to correct pronunciation. You know, we we tried to uh, fill that group with. Persian actors and Middle Eastern speaking actors, because those were the flavors that we were looking for, though not necessarily wanting to mimic Arabic or um, Farsi in any way, but the the palate tends to have an easier time with those hard CHs or those Mm -hmm. rolled CHs and those kinds of, you know, harsh consonants that we needed to pronounce.
0: And did you look to, you know, any cultures represented in the film that are unique to that universe, but did you? Was there a sort of sense of like this? The palette for you know this the uh, the Harkonnens is uh, going to be this, like the sound palette, the language palette, like versus the Sardaukar versus the you know etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And did you have reference points for each world and each you know? I, I obviously the worlds the sound of Arrakis is, is completely different than the other planets, right?
2: right? Right. Some of those things we we you know had guidance from you know, either from Frank Herbert's recordings or from David Peterson. And some of them, we, we winged it and, and figured them out as the film was being edited, like, like Mark did for the Sardaukar captain. There's the two Harkonnens in the hostage flight to, as we call it, the the, the, the scene where mm-hmm. Paul and Jessica had been taken hostage by the Harkonnens. And at some point, even though the actors were speaking English, in the shots, we decided it made more sense if they were talking a Harkonnen battle language, which is, you know, a concept that Frank Herbert had already invented. But so it's like a subset of the Harkonnen language. That they yeah, exactly. Talking. It's like when they when they oh, want wow. to talk in code, they yes. they, they start to, these are this grunt-like kind of slightly, you know, um, slightly Orkish kind of language. So in that case, Mark had done the starter card captain, so I got picked on to, <laughs> to come up with something for <laughs> these. <that he'd- laughs> I, I didn't have. I know I didn't have the linguistics training that Mark has. So it was a case of okay, I knew that Frank Herbert had got the word Harkonnen from from Finnish, or rather, mm-hmm. it's you know it's a Finnish surname. I knew that he had some idea that the Harkonnens were, uh, you know, um, a, a culture that had sort of evolved from and then kind of gone wrong along the way from. Uh, Scandinavian and Finnish cultures, so I'd sort of picked a few words from Finnish, you know, altered them, added in some sort of strange things like the names of sort of generic arthritis drugs, <laughs> 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 just, you know, <laughs> syllables. Again, it was really just like Mark said: you look at the you look at the mouth, you think, what could I fit to this? What he's saying, and you kind of rewrite in syllables. Uh, the only way that I could try and create something that felt like it was from a completely different. Angle from any of the other languages that we're hearing was, yeah, I mean, relying on syllables from from uh, the Finnish language.
1: Theo, uh, you could know, you, you get, you get just get one footnote to that is that you brought so much more to it because of your performance. It it has a beautiful thuggish character that we always <laughs> felt was a part of the Harkonnen uh, mindset. And you know, it is sort of a beautiful blend of, say, um, Klingon and Orc. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Thank you. I want to ask about Bene Gesserit and the voice. It's probably one of the most striking auditory moments that I can remember experiencing in a movie because usually sound does not call attention to itself. Usually sound is not quite like connected. Plot in that in that way in an overt way mm. I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense but like yeah. when Luke when Luke uses the Force for example yeah. there's going to be a John Williams theme there's going to be a visual but there isn't a sound and so in the text itself we know that this is a sound and so I'm sure there was some intimidation factor maybe about like how are we going <laughs> to do the voice oh you yeah know? He so, said so, right the,
2: from the very start this was the thing that that worried him the most about the sound this is the this is the biggest ticket for Mark and, and I to come up mm-hmm. with something that sounded like a real skill that someone had developed or a, a real thing, not some you know computer trick, not something that we could achieve with a plug-in that sounded right. semi-electronic or anything. So, yeah, it was always the hardest thing for us in many ways. It took the longest time to it, come it, up with yeah, the it, exact formula.
1: It, it took till almost the last day of the final mix, a year and a half after we started, to wow. actually complete it. And,
0: uh, okay, so I just, so we have to start then with the beginning of that from the intimidating factor, the fact that he also (laughs) identified it as like, this is going to be tough, guys. And what you guys went, what what went through your minds and then how did you build it? How did you build it? And how did you get the whole process all the way to the end and then say, I think we finally found it? Or were you just like, time's up, pencil's down? Well, (laughs) Well, the truth is there were many, yeah, I mean, there were,
2: there were many sort of, Experiments, honestly, that never made it uh, on my behalf, <laughs> and, and and on Ron uh, Bartlett, you also contributed ideas. Mark, we all we all sort of threw in our, our ideas. And the first idea that I had was, if this is supposed to be, I wasn't really sure. Is this supposed to be something that you you feel it inside your head? It's almost as if you know we get the sort of POV of inside someone's head, and it's it's mm. um, the voice is working on them. And I tried. Various things like recording in an anechoic chamber, and
1: mm, I remember that yeah, there were sort of experiments
2: that unfortunately didn't didn't pan out um you know interesting ideas, but they didn't convey what ultimately is needed, which is that this is it's an it's a weapon that someone can use against someone else it's a way that someone can be controlled in an instant it It, it needs to have both the ability to sell to the audience the idea that if you heard this you might it might just brainwash you for a second and make you do something. <laughs> so we had to have that kind of weapony aspect, but then it had to also you know, feel as if this was a, a, an organically learned, trained skill that somehow was, it belongs to the Bene Gesserit, right? That's the idea. It's, it's a Bene Gesserit yeah. skill, and it's kind of almost taboo that Paul has been taught this by his mother. And so we also needed to see Paul struggling to learn it, not quite getting it right you know, there were all of these sort of facets that the voice had to have for the story. So, you know, one of the first things that Mark and I thought was, it's not going to be about, uh, a you know, a preset on a plugin. It's going to be about performance. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to...
1: We wanted it to be much bigger than that, to actually have a narrative value. Yeah, mm.
2: exactly. Wow. And for it to convey this Bene Gesserit sort of this idea that it's an ancestral skill that the Bene Gesserits had. I mean, Mark, you, you, can, you can speak to what we did next.
1: Well, in um, a, a, a few download sessions with Denis and Joe, we hit on this idea that to deploy the voice as a weapon, you're, you're, you're effectively summoning all your Bene Gesserit ancestors and all the force and power that comes with them. Not mm. only that, we, we determined that not only should, should you be summoning that 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 force, but it should be a dominant-sounding woman, a, a, a family, lead, a matriarch. Thank you very much. That's the word I was looking so for. So she's
0: speaking through you and with you, like a chorus, but, but, almost
1: exactly, and speaking with authority and yeah. and power, like a mom and, yelling at you. <laughs> no, no, because we we wanted to be very, you know, and that's how refined this idea became. That it would it was not meant to be we wanted it to be authoritative without being, um, what's what's the adjective? Theo, help me out here. Anger,
0: without anger. Anger was
1: never the, 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 the trait that we wanted Mm -hmm. to convey.
2: Yeah. Almost like almost Royal, uh, an almost Royal command or something. I I was thinking early on of like Judy Dench or something as a kind of, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) an imperial sort of British monarch kind of voice. And it was Denis and Joe who said, you know what would be really good, like a voice that's as smoky and deep and kind of yeah, like Marianne Faithful was, the, was the, uh, mm. the, the direction they gave us, who was, you know, um, girlfriend of Mick Jagger and uh, sort of a singer in the 60s. And Denis managed to reach out to her and we did make some recordings with her, a couple of which really do, you know, are audible, especially when Paul is learning wow. to use the voice. Oh, wow. That's so cool.
0: So So, there was a person who was in there that was kind of part of the building blocks. What were the other building blocks that kind of sort of, uh, you know, modified it and grew it? Gene Gilpin. We discovered
2: this amazing, you know, Mark and I listened through a lot of different voices and then we heard Gene Gilpin and we were just like, ah, she can do it all. I mean, we needed someone who could take us from a whisper to a rasp to a command, you know, like Mm -hmm. build up multiple layers, different we suggested, you know, different versions of language. So we'd hear her speaking English, but we'd also hear her speaking like Bene Gesserit. And then we'd hear ancient Theo Gesserit. made
1: up. Footnote, Theo, <laughs> Theo invented the Bene Gesserit language for that, those recordings. Mm-hmm. Some was English, some was then
0: the ancient, some was the ancient ancient. Exactly. It's like you're scanning wow. through the whole sort of
2: family tree of the Bene Gesserit to some sort of first ancestor who ever learned the skill or something. You know, it's like not that you necessarily... Pick all of that up in one sitting, but certainly, you know, when Paul is failing with the voice, when we first see him in that breakfast scene, for instance, it kind of half works, half doesn't. All of the elements of the voice are a bit more exposed. We hear, Mm. you know, the rumble of the of the weaponized aspect of the voice, and we hear that kind of slip synced with his own voice. Everything's kind of out of sync, and so are the visuals that we see. We kind of see inside jessica's mind as if she's passing him the glass of water that he's just asked for you know we see uh, different moments kind of you know the wall we see some wind chimes moving it's Mm -hmm. sense that something has happened in the room we hear a slight rumble we hear kind of wisps of these ancient ancestors none of them are really coherent or um you know in sync Uh, we then the next time we hear the voice it's Reverend Mother Mohayam, who's using it against Paul in an almost weaponized fashion. She says, come here, kneel, and you know, all of those elements are just punched together in one instant, completely synchronized. And then you realize the power when someone's good at it, they can focus all of these aspects. It's the, you know, it's the whole sort of genetic memory. It's the weapon. Um, It's the command.
0: Royal command is is a good way to put it. It feel it yeah. felt yes. like a yeah. royal command, like it would be a bad idea to disobey what it's saying. Right. And it and it brings that. It's it's just amazing how many layers go into this. And and now, can you, Mark? Maybe you can bring it up here. Once you started finding that, you found the performer, and you started layering it. And, and there is a narrative to how we see it or how we right. hear it. I should say. Yeah. How did you yeah. know when it was there and how come it took to the last day,
1: essentially? Because it, it's a very nuanced treatment that required a lot of interplay, including working with Joe. So, for example, one of the gifts that kept on giving was our discovery of what else we could do with the voice. So, Not only could Paul weaponize it and speak with the authority and voice of a Bene Gesser- an ancient Bene Gesserit. We could also um, imply a chorus of Benny Gesserit or witchy voices that were speaking in and around what he was doing in sync uh, mm. to imply that the, the, the entire tribe was speaking to or for him. So we created these clouds of voices that would trail off from the deployment of the voice. And then that, of course, required, well, how long should that trail off be? Should it be a half a second? Should it be four seconds? So we would have to experiment with the 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 witchy uh, chorus and its trailings, and do- Joe would adjust picture accordingly, and then we'd weigh its success or lack thereof, and then maybe go back to the drawing board and, and keep experimenting with those Benny Gesserit clouds of voices. As we began to discover the, the language of how to use the voice, we discovered that we could do even more powerful narrative things like, have the, the, these voices speak text that had never been contemplated, and that opened up the universe for Denis in the dream sequences, because now we could summon, yeah. we summoned those voices to say things Im- important to the story and the plot that had never been contemplated, and that all of a sudden just gave us a whole world of possibilities where Theo and I would have to bring Gene back and record new ideas and then develop Benny Jesuit. Uh, clouds or witchy bubbles as we call them that would envelop (laughs) a a particular dream moment or the deployment of the voice and so it was and then it wasn't simply a matter of having the components it was layering them delicately and correctly into the sound field and that's where ron bartlett really comes in and his deft skills of finding just the right balance of paul's voice the deep rumble the weaponized part of the rumble where do we put the clouds in the theater and how do we balance them against the other voices? Oh, wow. No, it, it it may seem simple. Yeah, just make it sound good, but it took us, you know, 16 months to find those balances.
2: And being able to understand it as well. I mean, that's, that's key to what Ron was doing. We're not only have we got all of these elements of the bubbles and the weapon, that, but we need to be able to understand clearly in English what the command is. Uh, and right. when there are so many things going on, I think, you know... Um, that's, that was real skill in mixing.
0: When you talk about the dream sequences, because this, this segues nicely into talking about the idea of the terrible purpose, the way in which the book, the t- original text, shows us a lot of what is going to happen and also what is going on inside of people's minds. It's a very internal story. Mm. But the film... And I talked to uh, Joe and Greg about this when I spoke to them. The film really takes the approach of we're not going to like, you know, the the David Lynch film used some of the um, forwards to the chapters as a way of the foreshadowing that the tool that's in the book. This version of the film really takes you through the story as experienced more or, yes. or less chronologically. But I was thinking about that. Aspect of the terrible purpose, the dream clouds, the witchy bubbles, as you call them. Did you and Denise, you guys and Denise, start to talk about, well, that's going to be the pocket where we indicate and hint at all that's going on internally? Because yeah. that's now
1: sounding yeah. like what happened. Yeah, that, that was the beauty of this discovery, the sort of organic discovery. We all, Theo, I, Denise, and Joe, discovered all that possibility very organically as we grew and experimented with the technique.
2: Yeah, Denny would come to us with you know new lines written at several points during the edit, and 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 we'd record them with Gene. We'd make them into the witchy bubbles. We we would you know propagate them throughout those dream sequences, almost trying different approaches. Is is the voice toying with Paul? Is it giving mm-hmm. giving him valid information? Is it giving him mm-hmm. incorrect information? Is it is it pointing him towards people? That, you know um, that are part of his destiny only for the bene Gesserit. so you know there was a whole bunch of story stuff that Denis was able to experiment with and like you say in in the book so much of the action takes place inside of someone's thoughts and so much of what we did sonically is you know very uh, documentary real and yet in this in this context there is this sort of psychedelic hallucinatory aspect to dune and there is this sort of visionary the story of a person kind of uh, um, uh, developing their visionary powers.
0: Their relationship to what they envision about their future and whether or not it will come true or not. There's such a complicated dynamic. And I don't even want, I'm sure, I want to ask, but I can't. And you can't tell me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) How's it all going to play into part two? But (laughs) but I'm I'm sure it's already in progress and I'm so excited. You talked about the kind of the real, I, I forgot the term you used, Theo, but there's a, you know, documentary. Um, yeah. Let's can I can we just shift gears? No pun intended. In talking about the ornithopters because that's another extremely complicated. You read it, you probably bloom in your own mind a thing of what it is. Everybody might have a different one. When we saw audiences saw yours and heard it. I felt, and I think most people did, like, "Oh yeah, that's that's exactly what it is." But that's so hard to do, right? Because it's not clear mm-hmm. what it is or what yeah. it sounds like. So, can you t- again tell us about like creating the sound, creating the thing that it is?
1: You know, uh, early on, Theo and I—I I don't remember how we ended up with this—kind of divvied up some of the bigger projects, and his main focus was the voice, and my main focus was the ornithopters. Though we Kibitzed a great deal on each, and I I, I had nightmares wondering, <laughs> and, you know, l- look, looking at the mountain in front of me and how am I going to scale it. But yeah, I think it, it the, the the success begins with Denis, who gave us the sort of the ground rules for the entire sound of the movie. And you, you, I, I guess you and Theo discussed a little bit before I jumped on this idea of documentary realism we had this goal of having a, a universe that felt grounded in a reality an acoustic reality that we recognize uh we never wanted anything to sound s- fantastical which is often the hallmark of science fiction you know um science such fiction, a
0: bold direction to go in and it it's, paid it's off very bold. so well i'm so well, ama- it's it's incredible but continue we're,
1: we're, we're completely uh a cultured to this idea that because we're going to be presented with things we've never seen before, arguably there should be sounds we've never heard before. And that's, that's the incentive for sound designers to make, you know, these kind of crazy electronic synthetic things that in our movie just weren't going to sit right in that universe. We really wanted it to sound like we landed on Arrakis with a documentary film crew. And those are the sounds mm. that the boom pole captured. And, and so that was, the, that, that was the sort of guiding principle with which Theo and I molded or created everything that we did. So to make an ornithopter, it seemed obvious to me that we should start with all organic components. Nothing in the ornithopters were, I mean, they should sound like proper military hardware yeah um, you you should feel real wings and real wind you yeah. should feel real motors you should feel real metal and whimsically uh, we should feel perhaps insect because they are you know visually modeled uh, after uh dragonflies so all of those Were They
0: visually comp- modeled before you got to this Well yes obviously Oh it sure yeah
1: we good. had yeah. seen that artwork be- before we had even started right so it inspired so, your we began that process and would end up with creating ornithopters in terms of raw elements out of some very fundamental components. Theo had done some kind of crazy mail order beetle Thing, uh, like a, he had received like a beetle under in dry ice and and recorded no, I caught it. I caught it. <laughs> oh no, oh, I thought you bought <laughs> that. There's like no, a Bride.
0: <laughs> that would have been too easy.
1: That would <laughs> you caught oh. a bee you went
0: out and caught a beetle and brought it home and recorded its sound and <laughs> Yeah, it was it was one of the
2: early sort of components, you know. It, it's it's still in there although, you know, you know, to speaking to what, what Mark was saying about the design of, of, of the ornithopters, I mean, in the book it says that ornithopters are genetically engineered dragonflies. And, you know, a different director and a different art department, et cetera, would have gone about this a very different way. And you'd see sort of, you know, veins and, you know, organic mm. and things. And, and our task would have been to make something that sounded like a giant real dragonfly or something. You know, in this right. case, we could see very clearly, no, this is whilst there might be some kind of design aspects that may, that do look a little like a dragonfly. It's also clearly a big, like Mark says, serious military hardware um, with its sort of harsh angles. And, you know, it clearly, it begs to sound like a chopper. M- yeah. Yeah, certainly like, uh, so well, not whimsical, but, not fantastical, like some sort of giant flying beetle, which I think you know, Dinny quite rightly early pointed out would just come across silly. And what we wanted was say, something serious.
1: We, we certainly wanted to avoid chopper, though that that would have been the obvious sonic metaphor to right. start with it and and manipulate. But we we wanted nothing of that. We didn't want anyone accusing us of having taken the easy route. So. We, there is not a stitch of helicopter in any of the ornithopters. The, the ornithopter is really made out of four basic components for the wings, which is uh, a, a little bit of this uh, beetle wing that uh, Theo recorded, and then the sound of a, a canvas strap uh, flapping in a, in a storm, just flugging on, mm. uh, which gave us the flapping component. And then there's a cat purring because we love that fluttering component mm. to us like that and then the you know everything else the the mechanics you know the 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 the, the landing gear and and the, the the ailerons are all you know just terrestrial it's a lot of them are sounds that i recorded in my chevy vault it's the sounds mm. of electronic parking brakes and shift levers and real world acoustic organic stuff to give it heft and weight and and, and acoustic believability.
0: Yeah, I think what I meant partly was it feels like a real machine, not like a an X-wing, you know, which, you know, which is yeah. a different direction, but it feels like right. this is a machine in my world. And what's amazing about the film, but also your approach here, and you explaining to us that Denis came to you with this, it's grounded, it's real, yes. a, yeah. a documentary thing, is that the whole of Dune, feels like an analog future, intentionally, right? Because it's the end of of technology at some point in in that story arc before we get to the story we're telling. So, and the book was written in the 60s, but it's a beautiful way to just get us closer to an analog future where, you know, another thing I wanted to ask about is swords clashing with energy shields, like things like that, that nobody has ever seen or heard. It's not a thing we, we would recognize but we have some idea or context how you you know, you know say it's, it takes place thousands and thousands of years in the future on another planet and they fight with swords. <laughs> so right. It's sort of like, oh, okay. So tell me a little bit about the, that. That part of it, the shields, the swords, the still suits, these, these, the tools of their world and the way they interact. They're both grounded, but futuristic. I'm going to let
1: Theo, Theo, let me just lead you into that because yeah, I want you to finish, finish that thought. But just to finish your last thought, George, it should be known that to achieve that analog reality that, that I'm, I'm just tickled that you, you felt and, and appreciated, to achieve that, we created, we created 3,200 bespoke sounds for this film. And hmm. all but four of them, or five of them, are, were made with acoustic analog recorded sound. And I, I have this pet theory that the brain is listening for the cues that are embedded in acoustic recordings that aren't embedded in a synthesizer or electronic sound. And that ticks a, checks a box in the brain subconsciously that says, you can believe this. And that's, I think, mm. one of the reasons why you, you w- walked away from this film feeling like all of that sounded like kind of real and organic, because yeah. it was.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're right. Because I also, I mean, I remember asking Greg about the cinematography, like when the, even when the light follows him, I said, how did you guys know that that's what the light looked like in my mind? And I (laughs) was like, how did you know that we, I've talked to other people that are like, did it look like that in your mind when you read it? Yeah. How did they know? And I feel like it has something to do with this same idea with the sound is like, we're going to try to be true to the organic nature of it as much as we can. And I think there are subtle cues, you're right, that lead us down that path.
1: Yeah, I'll let Theo do the shields part, but one final thought, that as I interpreted Denise's directive, he wanted us to create the sounds of things we've never heard before as if we had heard them before.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, that's good. It's a tall order though. That must, that's such an intimidating directive, but it's a it's, great line. It's
2: yeah, <laughs> it's seemingly completely um, impossible. <laughs> the um it's I mean certainly there there are only a few technologies in in the film that we see that really stand out as being something that we don't immediately relate to from our own world. I mean, even to some extent, even the Ornithopters feel like their version of a helicopter or or whatever. There are a few things like the voice, I suppose, like if you could call that a technology, like a spiritual technology, like the shields and the worm that are completely, you know, something from, from another, uh, another part of the universe. And one of the really beautiful things, and it's also in the way that, Frank Herbert writes, and I, I love uh, the way that Joe Walker describes it as a sort of fractal narrative, which also, you know, um, suggests that, you know, the, the, the more you kind of zoom into it, the more details you find. Um, yes. But also that those details are in some way kind of repeating. That is to say, let's take the shields, for example, the Holtzman field, which is, you know, the, the technology that they have almost universally throughout the Dune universe, which is what they use for, um, for creating the shields what we don't get into in the movie is that, you know, the reason that you can't use bullets in this world is that they're, they're, they're too fast moving. We do hear Gurney when he's training Paul saying, you know, a a slow blade penetrates the shield and we can see visually that the only way that you can get past a shield is if you're very, very slow and you kind of sneak in a blade. But we're kind of, you know, uh, left to have just a few other clues of, for instance, why can't you use a shield in the desert? We hear Kynes saying, uh, you know, shield's a death sentence in the desert because the vibrations attract the worms. And when we see the worms, we realize that they kind of vibrate and that they have a, you know, their way of communicating is like a big, slow vibration and that you know, the dunk, dunk, dunk sound. And yes. the Fremen are using sand thumpers that attract the worms that also make a kind of dunk, dunk. So it's as if there are all of these sort of themes of vibrations running through Frank Herbert's universe. And one of the things that Mark and I can do as kind of sound designers who are universe building, if you will, um, is not just look at what's this technology going to sound like, what's this scene going to be, you know, and and not to be piecemeal about it, but instead to try to, to be thematic about it in the way that perhaps a composer has themes that reoccur throughout a movie and tie certain things together. We very much look for those moments where we can tie something that exists in the universe together. For me, the shields were a way of having a very clear example of the, the, the vibration. It's the kind of the pattern of clicks that we hear that's like a, a you know, it's a glitching, it's, is it molecules that are kind of vibrating around someone? Uh, It sounds like static electricity or something like that. And, you know, the idea that the rhythm that that creates is dangerous in the desert because it would attract a worm led us on to all kinds of other things about how, when the thumper is used, is that something which the Fremen developed because they'd heard a worm making the sound? Is it like a, you know, like we make a duck call? Or is, in fact, the worm responding to the sounds that it's heard from the Fremen? you know, it's it's a chicken and egg situation, as Mark has has described. I mean, it's, um, there are all of these ways that we've kind of knitted in, you know, uh, different themes to do with vibration in the movie.
0: Feels like you're talking about these vibrations for each thing. Are they sort of communicating with one another? Like you say, like, you know, the shield sounds this, so it it would clue to the the worm, the thumper sounds this way because it's a, an attempt to communicate to the worm. So a lot of these sounds feel like they're in conversation almost.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's exactly the way that that's the sort of the fractal nature of Frank Herbert's universe. And it's one of the things that makes it feel believable to me. Reading the book, you feel like all of these elements interrelate. Inter- they, they have an interplay. And that's you know sonically something which I think Mark and I were very conscious of. We we need to have to have a believable universe. There has to be interplay between the themes, uh, the concept, the sounds. They need to be part of a sort of a family that lives on in if, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I mean the shields uh, are a family. We we hear slightly different versions of them for Baron Harkonnen for the the the, the shields that the the spaceships have. The clearest example where we kind of really introduced to what a shield is, is in that training fight between Paul and Gert. Yes. And, you know, just to get into some of the nitty gritty details, I mean, that was actually an accident. I'd come up with a sound which Denis kind of liked, but it was more like a purring kind of Mm -hmm. sort of vibration. And it wasn't until something went wrong with my synthesizer settings and it started doing something, you know, which technically you're not supposed to clip. You're not supposed to have clicks, you know? Hmm but it started making these showers of clicks. And it's one of those things that Denny heard responded to him as like, that sounds like a weapon. And it has that kind of edgy quality as if
0: something is straining to, uh, to contain a force. Something's about to happen too. There's something a little dangerous about it. Yeah.
2: Because it's an imperfect te- technology. I mean, it can, it can be, be defeated. Yeah. We see it breached in different ways throughout the film. So we need to know that that's not like, uh, you know, it's not a um, it's not a force field that's perfect in any way. It's it's a it's a kind of it's a help, <laughs> but that's all.
0: Before I run out of time, because we could go on forever, oh gosh, there we, I,
2: yeah.
0: I want to ask you one more thing, both of you, about the last piece that I want to ask about that we can't ignore is the worm, <laughs> the worms in Dune, and the sounds of the worms. And we have a few minutes here, but just because we're kind of like going through, kind of, I feel like the main. Some of the main, at least. We can't do everything. We could just talk about the wind on Iraqis, probably. But let's We're talk good. about the worms and how that sound is born and, and developed.
1: Well, the early experiments, it, when Denis and Joe came to us, they kind of laid out what we call the big ticket items, which was voice, number one, uh, shields, worms, and ornithopters. Those are really the four big items that needed immediate research and development. And we went down several paths uh, in, in, in very different directions. Theo began by introducing the idea of a worm being ex- extraordinarily quiet upon that breach and, and perhaps not making any sound at all, mm. which was a very bold choice, very much in line with Denise's sensibilities. We also because it's a down- predator
0: that's sort of sneaking up, right?
1: Well, of course. And Denis never does things in the ways that the audience expects to be Mm. fed in in science fiction. So we also attempted the polar opposite of that, which was the sort of Godzilla version of the worm. Mm. The worm breaches and emits a mighty roar that echoes off of the canyons. And that was not the correct approach either, because it would turn out that the reveal of the worm and the worms relationship to Paul and, and Jessica was meant to be a moment of quiet reverence and mm. a, a giant <laughs> you know was, was was going to really ruin the vibe of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> and so as as Theo was mentioning earlier, as you know, we never make these sounds in a bubble. We never wanted to populate our films with interesting sounds just for the sake of them being interesting. They need to have a narrative component. And we hit upon this idea of the relationship of the thumper and the worm and the chicken and the egg and which came first. Uh, and it's kind of all at the same time, we're developing the thumper going thump, thump, thump. We realized the worms should, should go gunk, gunk, gunk. And in <laughs> fact, that's the pet name we have for the worms vocalizations. <laughs> we call them gunk, gunk, gunks. And that is what begat that family of sounds that had a very rhythmic nature that mimicked the thumpers. And those sounds took, I don't know, three or four months to develop and refine. And once we had kind of cracked that nut, what does the worm's vocalization sounds sound like? We could then focus on some of the subservient and more nuanced sounds, such as that baleen like, you know, teeth or feathers Mm -hmm. that it has in its maw. And it's breathing sounds. What is the sound of a 400 meter long tube sound like? <laughs> <laughs> Moving in the
0: too. But, yeah, but no, it, we, but I mean.
1: You know, we, the first direction was we we went to our kind of go to palette of big animal sounds, but they had this kind of gurgly, you know, as animals do, they have saliva in, the, in their maw. That they sounded too wet, and this is the driest planet in the driest solar system in the universe and none of those sounds would fit so we had to find a way to make inhale exhale sound as if there isn't a drop of moisture there. how how did you do it? Theo, well <laughs> well one of the ways uh, when the worm actually sucks the the spice crawler down into the its maw in, in one of the in the spice crawler uh, rescue scene and the death of kind scene. We didn't have any analog versions of that. There's no worms to be recorded mm. in the desert, so I recorded myself by dropping a microphone down my throat and simply <laughs> doing a giant <sighs> inhale, and then brought that into the studio and you know built it out to have the size and girth of a 400 meter long giant worm. Wow. Did you ever get the microphone out? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're broadcasting from.
0: <laughs> we're hearing from that microphone right now. That's, I, there's, I wish we could talk more. I am amazed by the work you both did. Now, after having heard about all the layers and the details that I had no idea about, and, and just in awe of this movie and this work, and I can't wait to see the next piece, and I'm, I'm hoping that it gets celebrated in all the possible ways. Thank you both so Thank much you, for George. coming on. Thanks, George. That's really fun. Thank you, Mark and Theo, for coming on the podcast. Thank all of you for listening. Be sure to check out all kinds of stories in tech, education, filmmaking news, and more at nofilmschool.com. Like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment to let us know what you think. Email us any of your questions or comments at editor at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to listen for the rest of the week and actually just forever because this podcast is great and there's so much good stuff in it. And it's not because of me, it's because of the people who are coming on like Mark and Theo. We have a couple more coming out this week. One is just our regular weekly news. We have another one with the production designers and the art department for Nightmare Alley. And if you've been listening, you also know how much I love that film and how amazed I was by the craft that went into it. They are also Oscar nominated. And we have our Oscar roundup coming at the very end of the week where we pull together great moments with all the nominees that we've spoken to this year. So be sure to keep listening. Thank you so much.